Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240 for Spring Semester 2023. Today, ethics. They, I will go until uh, 1.30 and then you will have a uh, quiz and that will be the last quiz of the semester and then you are free to leave. Next week is primarily review, cleaning up a couple of topics on Monday and then reviewing on Wednesday intensively and I'll talk about that next week. For now, however, we will finish one last subject. It's another special topic subject, so it's not in the textbook exactly. It's scattered through there, but I have a PowerPoint presentation on the most important aspect of ethics, and I will make that available for you to review. That will be the, uh, that it will be the content of my lecture, uh, at least the part that's the primary part. First, a look at the numbers, and we have a rather lousy day. It just it bounced up some, and then it just sort of is losing its steam. The NASDAQ still seems to be trying to hold on, but the Dow is down, not quite a quarter of a percent. The S&P 500 made some move upward, and now it's lost its will to live. It's still in positive territory, but it's probably going to drop negative here in the next uh, half hour or so. So we have kind of a grim day going on on the street. It's not a horrible day, obviously. We had a pretty awful day yesterday, but now notice crude is really beginning to tail down. As I said, that 72 to 79 band for uh, price per barrel on Brent Light Suite is right about it's in the it, right right in the middle of that now and it just doesn't have much will to go back up so as i told you before that that spike in crude oil prices of several weeks ago it just wasn't going to hold and so we're back down which is good news because that'll help with the economy somewhat but moving rolling over here the 10-year bond yields have spiked and that means prices have gone down. So investors are getting out of bonds. And interestingly, they're not really moving into uh, equities at all. So that your conclusion, gold, yep, gold broke down below the neckline at $2,000 an ounce. So that all is telling me that investors are moving their investment funds to the sidelines into money markets and things like that. Again, it's wait and see. No real direction. The euro is really appreciated against the dollar. It's up to a dollar. A euro is now costing a buck ten, and that's uh, pretty strong. And the pound, uh, British pound, is doing the same thing. It's up there to almost a buck and a quarter for one pound. So are the dollars losing its luster right now? Which, as I had said, if the dollar depreciates, that makes our exports to other countries cheaper in those countries. That helps our export industry because then these other countries buy more of our stuff. 
our exports. And it makes, but on the other hand, it makes imports from other countries more expensive here. That actually is good news in a way because that makes our domestically produced products more competitive in domestic sales because the uh, foreign versions get more expensive. So in a way, this is, although it's not all that great when the dollar is depreciating like that, it does have positive benefits. It helps our export industries uh, and it also makes the, the foreign products more expensive, so our stuff is more likely to be bought, stuff that's produced domestically. So there is a bright lining to that. But over here on the other side of the uh, world, uh, Japan had a rather down day. It wasn't a horrible, but a, almost a three-quarters of a percent down, so Tokyo wasn't in a good mood. And then London came on, and it was in a grouchy mood, too, down almost a half a percent for the day. So the world is kind of in this grumbling uh, place right now. The recession is sort of on the minds of countries and investors both, so we'll just have to see how it works out here. It's not horrible right now, but it is a little bit scary. And I, well, as usual, I on my fun portfolio, it became very unfun, and everything that I had invested in has been creamed. So there's that, which always irritates me. But anyway, moving on from there. Now, the PowerPoint presentation that I'll bring up is called The Agency Dilemma. And The Agency Dilemma is a is an answer to an ethical to the question of ethics in your actions. Now, I am charged by the state with teaching you something about ethics. Well, of course, Illinois being such an, Ill, uh, an ethical kind of political environment, I get excited about fulfilling their dreams. In fact, every year among the certifications for the year that I have to do is this long, grueling ethics uh, training. And uh, I have to get recertified every year that I am an ethical son of a bitch. So uh, the interesting thing about that, that training is that it's all about the ethics laws of the state. What this law says, how you, uh, how you act under that law. What this law says, how you do that. What happens if you do something wrong or if you see someone else doing something wrong. And that is not ethics. Ethics is not law. If I abide by the law, I am ethical. That's, eth that's ethical. Not necessarily. Ethics is a code of an individual or an organization that directs appropriate actions and behaviors. A code of an individual or an organization that directs actions and behaviors. Now, yeah, the uh, a code of an organization, individual or an organization that directs actions and behaviors. Now, let me do something here. 
not to fatigue you, but ethics is a lot easier to say than it is to explain or to act out in practice. And we do not, we try not to rely on religion to define ethical action. Uh, although we can say, well, this is what this religion says, we want to transcend that and make it something that the civil, secular society and its participants can use. Now, the, uh, the first attempt at describing what would be ethical action, we can go clear back to a philosopher from, I believe, the 16th century. I'm, my mind isn't working here. His name was Immanuel Kant. And he laid it out as what we call the categorical imperative. The categorical imperative. And I, I'm going to distill it down. It was written in German, and of course that means that it's difficult to translate into anything but German. But it kind of boils down to this. Always act as you would expect others to act. Now some very uneducated un would say, well that's the golden rule, do unto others as they, you would have them do unto you. No, it's not. This is for you to act yourself as you think others, you hold that others should act. Not just to you, but to every, in every situation. I want you to be this way, to do this in this situation. Therefore, I must behave like that myself. This has nothing to do with you, actually. It has to do with me. I would like you to be a very nice person and drive safely, but you're a freaking maniac. You're a blind trout on the road. Uh, well, I, actually, that doesn't matter. All that matters is that I behave that way. And if we all did that, well, we would have a great civil society. Unfortunately, that's not what happens. This is categorical. In other words, always do this. It's the old thou shalt and thou shalt not that is the basis of law. And it, 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 it's a good start, and it was done by a uh, philosopher, and it was embraced rather widely, but it, it, because it comported with a sense of the religion that was in, internal, not going after everyone else, but doing what was right by yourself which was also part of the Protestant Revolution. Instead of having the church impose, you impose upon yourself. Do your thing right, because that's what you want others to do. Didn't carry too far. We've got a couple of, in the 19th century, came about something we would call situational ethics. At least it was recognized, it had always been around, but situational ethics. As it says, your ethical action in any given circumstance is based upon the situation.
Now there were a couple of variations on this and one of them was pushed forward by uh, an educator slash philosopher named John Stuart Mill and then there was Bellamy who had his version of it. Essentially John Stuart Mill we can summarize Mill as being utilitarian. Utilitarianism works like this. Do what is right for the, be- for the greatest. The greatest good for the greatest number. The greatest good for the greatest number. That's how you should uh, act in any given situation. Bellamy was wider not always is the good for the most the good the real good most people in the early 1800s would have seen, in the United States, would have seen slavery as okay. The greatest numbers see that this works for them, and therefore it's okay. And that means that the utilitarian approach kind of slides away. Here's the situation, and I'm going to give it to you. I'll, I'm, see if I can find someone who would really have a, really get into this. Okay. You, madam, you are the chief uh, executive officer of a very large uh, pharmaceutical company. Now, you were, your company was working on a, a medicine that would fix a severe childhood illness. Kids who had this illness were, had a life expectancy of two to five years. You have found a cure for it. And you're going to go to a press conference. This is a public company, and you're going to announce, we have it. We've gone through the clinical trials, and this works. Now, your chief scientist comes up to you the night before the press conference and says, here's the thing. Out of every 1,000 children, it cures 995 of them. Five die within six weeks. It kills them. What are you going to do at that press conference? Mm-hmm. Say it. Not follow, through. follow through with what? Are you going to announce that you have it? It's met FDA approval. And you're going to save 995 of every 1,000 kids from this disease. You will kill just five. What are you going to do? Got an idea? What are you going to do? I would go through with it. What happens if one of those five is your kid? Um, I would probably make it known, though, <laughs> that it's a risk. And then your ass would be fired very quickly. The stock price would fall. Remember that your job 
is to, as an executive officer, is to maximize the wealth of the shareholders. You do this, the stock price is going to go to the toilet. If you announce that there is a problem, it kills a few children. But it helps a lot more. But it helps a lot more. So in other words, you're going to try to do a tap dance at that. Okay. <laughs> you see, here's the ethical problem that folks like you face. I can tell you that there's a company that I could probably say they would hire you. You would make really good money. You would advance through the years. I can guarantee, I can tell you, I won't tell you the name of the company, but here's the thing about this company. They, they build lots of great industrial equipment, machines that dig the ground up to build new buildings, farm equipment, all kinds of industrial construction types of stuff. And they sell it all over the world. And as one of their employees, you will benefit from the growth of this massive company. You will be taken care of throughout your whole life. And you have a job, which is something that is uh, great in uh, our uh, economy today. Here's the thing though, this company sells its equipment all over the world. It sells it to, well let me tell you, it, sold, it sells its equipment to a country that occupies another uh, country. In that occupied country, this company's equipment is used to plow down the villages of that other, those people. It goes through their olive tree um, groves that have been uh, kept by the family for two, three hundred, five hundred years, and it plows them down to build buildings for the citizens of the occupation country. It kills people who get in its way. It drives right, the, your equipment will drive right over the protesters trying to protect their land. It'll just drive over them and mangle them. But you could get a job with this company and it will pay you well. You take a job with them? Why not? You wouldn't. Loser! No. <laughs> you understand that no matter where you stand on your own ethical ground, you're going to at some point, probably, aside from you, you're going to say, well, yeah, they're doing horrible things, but I gotta frickin' eat and pay my rent, damn it. So we compromise our ethics in a way that certainly is not categorical, and the situation can be driven to the point where <coughs> you're going to look out for yourself. You're going to protect your own interests. And that is the key to what we call the agency dilemma, which I'm going to bring up here in a minute. The agency dilemma is a way that we first recognize the ethical problem that we all face, and then we have a um, sort of a mechanistic solution to handle all of the difficulties we can face. Look, I could put ethical, unethical across the top, and then I could put over here legal and illegal on this axis, on this axis. And it could, it turns out that there are many times when ethical action is legal action. 
But there are many, many times in business where unethical action is perfectly legal. Or at least you could get the lawyers to get you out of a legal problem. That is the problem in business. Now, there are also situations where an ethical action is actually illegal. You do something that is right, but you will have broken the law for having done it. And then there are those actions that are unethical and illegal at the same time. Those are the easy ones. It's not right to do it, and the law says I can't do it. But there is this hazy ground of ethical but illegal action and legal but unethical action, and there's where our difficulties come as business people. Well, as, as people in general, but in the business world, this is the focus of the difficulties we can have in our workplace uh, from time to time. <clears throat> so, let me take you to a way that we can address all of this as business people. And they bring this up in the book, I think even in the first chapter, and in a number of books, even in my international finance course, the textbook brings up this issue of agency uh, several, several times early on. And then we just kind of quickly uh, move away from it because it is a difficult topic to talk about. And that's why we have professors like me who will hit it right over the uh, nose. It starts with a simple principle. You are out for yourself. That's the reality of it. You may do good for other people. Oh, I did this and that was $10 out of my pocket uh, for giving this charity and all that. But the reality is, at the margin, I have to assume that you will cover your own ass. That you will maximize your own welfare if you have the ability to do it. You, sir, here you are driving your car down one of these nice, long, straight country roads. It's paved and the sun is shining and you're driving along and you see a, a speed limit sign, 55 miles an hour. Now, I have found that in Illinois, speed limit signs are challenges. <laughs> <laughs> and so you see that it's just a clear road, nothing up ahead, so you just put that pedal to the metal, 65, 75, 85, you hear a voice behind you say, warp six, and you start, you know, stars start streaming by you, and all of this kind of stuff. Okay. Now, up ahead, way up ahead, in one of those little drives into a field, you see a car. Wow. You get a little closer. Uh-oh. That is a sheriff's deputy's car. What are you going to do? Sure you will. Have you ever been driving on a highway? Everyone's driving like a maniac. And all of a sudden, you see brake lights up ahead. That's the highway patrolman with his radar up there. And so all of a sudden, everyone instantly finds Jesus and slows down. That's monitoring. Begins to control behaviors in, the, uh, in, your, in your life. 
But then you get close enough and you see that the sheriff's deputy is standing out beside his car. Oh God, he's got a radar, slow down more. But when you get really close, you see that he's not standing, he's stooped over, he's changing the tire on his car. <laughs> so he can't enforce. So what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to speed up. I'm going to wave, hi officer. Uh, enforcement. The two critical keys are monitoring and enforcement. And in any contract, a legal contract, a social contract, the only way you can guarantee compliance with behavior is both through the monitoring and through the enforcement. Those are critical in any contract. Again, whether it is a legal document or a social contract. If they don't see you do it, well, go ahead and do it. But if they can't enforce, even if they see it, but they can't do anything about it, well, you're, on, you're back in the saddle again, having fun. So that's one of the bases that we have to start with. Now, I want to give you two terms here, agent and principal. Agent and principal, and that's with a P-A-L. The agent is charged with maximizing the well the welfare, and that could mean in our case primarily the wealth of another. And that takes us to the principle. The principle is the person whose welfare is to be maximized. by the agent. So this is the binding relationship. The board of directors of a corporation is the agent of the stockholders. Now notice that this is the legal definition of person. A person could be an individual, but a person could be some legally identifiable group. So in that case, the board of directors is the agent of the stockholders. The board of directors is charged with maximizing the wealth of the stockholders. And then the executive management is charged with complying with the directions of the board of directors. But that's not the only place where agent-principal relationships go on. Let's try one here. A doctor and a patient. In a doctor-patient relationship, who is the agent and who is the principal? The agent would be the doctor and the yes, patient. Yes, because the, uh, the doctor is charged with maximizing the health of the patient. And the patient is the principal, relying upon the doctor for that. Let's try another one. How about this one? In a parent-child relationship, who is the agent and who is the principal? In a parent-child relationship. 
Bingo. The child is the principal because the parent is charged by law and by social norms with maximizing the welfare of the child. Isn't that interesting? Let's try this one. In a marriage, is the husband the agent? Who, wait, let's try this. Who is the agent and who is the principal in a marriage? And I caution you, boy, <laughs> just to walk carefully in this one. Who is the agent in a marriage? Who's the agent and who's the principal? Could you argue that they're both each? Both each? Like no, you almost had it there. They're both the agents. Well, who's the principal? The marriage. The marriage is a person. Legally, in fact. You are both charged with maximizing the welfare of the marriage. Isn't that interesting? It is an inanimate object. The only way that that marriage becomes a living person is through the ethical actions of its agents. Now here's the problem. Let's go back to the marriage. You are married, okay? And your wife has gone on a business trip and you get a phone call. Ring, ring, hello. Hi, remember me? I'm from the sorority. We're having a twerkathon and we'd like you to be the judge. <laughs> oh, I'm the agent of a marriage and I'm going to protect that marriage. What are you going to do? sleep on the couch. Well, she doesn't know. She'll find out. No, she won't. Oh, okay. They You're one of those boys out. who tells the truth to your woman. They always find out. <laughs> Here's one. And I speak as a parent. Now, you see, when you come home from work and you've got your kids, you're supposed to, you know, do everything great for them. Uh, you, you see the kids bouncing, jumping, boing, 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 on the couch. They're swinging from the lanterns. They're tearing up the house. You're supposed to take them, give them a big hug. Oh, come on, let's, I'm going to make you a great meal from scratch, and then I'm going to give you some huggies and bathe you, and then I'll read you some bookies for bedtime. You know, I love you so much. Uh, here's, here's, let's take this, uh, you know, I'll comb your hair. No, that's not what's going to happen. You're going to stagger and go, oh, God. <laughs> Uh, and your kids are bouncing off the wall, swinging from the chandelier. Ew. What you're going to do? You're, ew, ew, stop that. Ew, get Here, take my belt. Beat yourself. You're bad. And uh, put some nuke and puke in the microwave. That'll, that'll feed you, damn it. Uh, go to bed. You bug me. You see, you have your own incentives there. Just like you have an incentive to see exactly how great that torquathon is. Just like the board of directors of the corporation has a lot of incentive to protect its own asses and feed its own wealth. You see, there's a problem. The agency dilemma works like this. It is simply the reality that, and we call this the agency dilemma. The agent has incentive to maximize its own welfare instead of the principles.
welfare. That's the agency dilemma. You must accept that this is how it works. Well, no, I trust this person. You know, I, he's not going to screw me over. I trust my man. You know, I trust my daddy and mommy. That's not how it works in our business lives. As much as we want to love and trust and enhance and nurture our, our, those under us, we must recognize that there is an incentive. Whether or not it is carried out by the agents, there is an incentive always to maximize their own interests instead of that of the principal. That's just how it works. And this gives us a framework by which we can proceed to ethical action. That monitoring and enforcement, who does that, the agent or the principal? Tell me, who, ma who monitors and enforces, the agent or the principal? Mm, it depends. No, it doesn't. Parent-child relationship. There. Oh, okay. We'll get into that in a little bit, though. Yes. There. That. Yeah. Go ahead. No. Unfortunately, they'd have the incentive to maximize their own. You and I work for the company. I won't say anything if you steal a little bit. You won't say anything if I steal a little bit because we're all screwing the man. You see, that's the problem: is that it is the principal's obligation to monitor and enforce. It's not the agents. It's not the agents. Now, there is a special set of circumstances we'll talk about in a, in a little bit here. It's called fiduciary duty. And they use that term far too loosely, and I will tighten that up real quick in a little bit here. But in general, it is the job of the principal to monitor and enforce compliance with the contract, not the agents. We even have this codified in common law. Now, when I talk about law, I want to give a quick little sidelight here. There are actually, a, you could break down law into all kinds of different categories, divisions, civil versus criminal, uh, whatever. But for the, my purposes, I'm going to break the law down into two different types. There's common law and then there's statutory law. Statutory law is written. Common law is tradition. Let me explain. The Roman Empire as it developed, it was pursuing a statutory law basis for its society. Everything was written down as a thou shalt not, mostly, or a thou shalt. It was written. On the other hand, now in fact, this law was so, got so huge, 
so complicated that it was literally a lawyer in later Roman times would have specialized in maybe a couple of specific passages of the law. It was ridiculous. Now, common law is tribal. It is based upon oral tradition. What has been decided before is our guide to what we decide and how we act now. Precedent, P-R-E-C-E-D-E-N-T, carries. As a matter of fact, it has recently come back up in some arguments about the Supreme Court. This term, stare decisis, or if in English, stare decisis, stare decisis, follow the precedent, look back, what has the court decided before this? That's common law. In our tradition, it has nothing to do with what the, what, well, let's look at the Constitution. That's actually kind of irrelevant. What matters is constitutional law. How the courts have previously interpreted the Constitution. That's this vast ocean, this body of constitutional law, con law. And it's almost hilarious. Well, the Supreme Court doesn't follow the Constitution. No, they don't. There is this vast body of interpretation. And any court must look back, stare decisis, they will decide based upon what they have seen the courts rule before. And only rarely, under extraordinary circumstances, do they change a, a previous decision, overturn it. This is common law. Now, the problem with us here is what happened before the United States in England. France was a Rom Roman, Roman country. It, was, it had a statutory law. It was all based on that law. The Napoleonic Code was a later version of it. So when they invaded England in 1066, England was Germanic, and that means it was tribal, common law. And so the French tried to impose statutory law on the English, and it came out to be a mishmash, as we see in the United States. There are laws written which we should abide, but then the courts have the ability to say yes or no to those laws. In other words, judicial review. So we have sort of a blended system here. It's a part one and part the other, and it drives us crazy. The Congress will pass a law. And then the Supreme Court, it'll eventually maybe get to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court will say yes or no to that law. And then the Congress will go back and try to pass another law to see if it passes constitutional muster based upon common, uh, the constitutional law. 
it's a back and forth process. Somehow we've managed to keep it going for a couple hundred years, so there's that. But this judicial review was set forth very early in the country's life in a decision by the Supreme Court called Marbury v. Madison. It's in the PowerPoint where the, the Supreme Court said, we are going to review any law. In other words, you don't get to have just pure statutory law. We will have a common law tradition. Now, I brought this up just for a simple purpose. The idea of agents and principles is ancient. It is, goes back, I mean, speaking from my past in linguistics, we can track this idea of binding of agents and principles clear back to the original language that was spoken by the tribes around the Black Sea that eventually became all the languages that we know about usually. We hear this word lex, line, ligature, uh, law. They all have that L, the, uh, which was in the original language, the Proto-Indo-European. It means to bind people together. Bindings, lex, law, logos, books, law, uh, all those kinds of things, line. Let me take you where, let me get off that and explain. Common law has a concept called respondeat superior. Or respondeat superior. Here's what it means. It means that the principal is the one who answers. Not the agent. It's a principle that answers. So the agent is, in to, as long as the agent can reasonably argue, I was following what I was told to do by the principle, it is not the agent who is at risk. It is the principle who is at risk in a normal agent-principle uh, relationship. I'll give you an example. This starts in a, uh, you, you'll, you can tell where this is going by some of the words. This started in a bar. There's your first problem. In West Virginia, there's your second. And it involved a uh, bartender who had a, a, an amazing skill. He could throw knives clear across a room and hit dead on to a target, a card held up, a, a, a bullseye, whatever. And he was a show attraction. Guys and girls would come go to the bars to see this guy do his thing while he was making drink, or while he was making drinks, or on his break. And he did this every night. And so one night, he, uh, this old, tough geezer was in the bar, a biker, walked right through where the guy was throwing a knife. And the knife went in through his left eye. Well, the guy drove himself to the emergency room. And as I understand the story, as it was told to me, 
he, uh, the late nurse at the front desk didn't even look up. She just said, sign in, we'll get to you. And the guy said, lady, ask me if this hurts. And so she looked up and saw the knife sticking out of his eye and she went to a happy place. And, uh, but he sued and the, uh, he sued the owners of the bar. And the bar's owner said, this wasn't us. This was this guy who works for us. We, you can't sue us. And they said, oh yeah, we, uh, the court said, no. He was there. You knew that he was doing this. You, in fact, encouraged it because it was enhancing the revenue of your business. No, he's not the one who should be sued. It's you, the owners of the establishment, because you are the respondeat superior, and therefore you carry the vicarious liability. That gives you a lot of incentive as the principles to manage, contain, monitor, and enforce the actions of your agents. Because as long as they can say, I was, uh, uh, the, I was imposing these rules, and the agent can say, I was complying, well, there you go. Now this takes us to another matter. And I know you all took a legal, uh, a legal uh, environment of business course, but I think I'm informing you of things that you were not told. Here's the next interesting part of it. Now let me give you another example. A uh, case when I used to teach uh, legal environment of business long ago. Okay, this one happened at a, through a car dealership, a used car dealership. The used car dealership, as many of them do, they buy used cars from, a, from brokers and then they sell them on their lot. Well, they sold a car to, well, the, the dealership sold a car to an older woman and the odometer read 23,000 miles, something like that. Well, she drove the, bought the car, drove it around for a couple of weeks, and it started to act up a lot. So she took it to a mechanic, and he's, the mechanic said, no, this car, is, it, it, this car doesn't have 23,000. This car probably has 150,000, if not more. And in fact, the odometer has been jimmied on it. It's been rigged, fixed. And so she sued the dealership. And the dealership said, hey, this is not our problem. We brought it, bought it from a broker. She needs to sue that broker, car, used car broker, because he was the one who probably did this. And in fact, the court said, no, she sues you, Cupcake, the car dealership. Why? Because the standard is not actual knowledge. The standard is not what you actually know. It is constructive, what you could have known. That's the standard. You represent that you will sell cars. You represent an expertise. You represented that this car had 23,000 miles on it, you could have known 
Because you said you were good car dealers, because you deal in cars, you could have known and therefore you are on the hook. You are in jeopardy because you could have known. So you remember this as a principle. Well, I didn't know. That doesn't matter. You could have known. So you understand that the principal is really on the hook here. That's why in your positions, you're, you are an agent of principals most likely, but those under you, you must monitor and enforce. Not because it is in some diffuse way ethical, it's because your ass is at risk. By common law, as defended by the courts since time immemorable, you are the principal, you are the one who is liable for the actions of your agents. Well, this agent, this guy, I, I didn't know he was going to do what he was going to do, uh, but you could have known. Give you an example of this. Uh, and this happened to a big ag company in this area. One day, they have trucks that drive uh, chemicals to different farms and farm co-ops, and they uh, carry chemicals that can be dangerous AF, uh, anhydrous ammonia, uh, propane, and all kinds of chemical fertilizers, all kinds of terrible things. So those truck, those drivers are expected to drive very carefully and be responsible. Well, one day, so uh, a, uh, one of the employees of this company was driving by a bar on the west side of town here that used to be there, the bar's gone. Now he had parked one of their company trucks up against the fence that was on the other side of, on the other side of the fence was a hotel. Now that truck had in it propane and it was a giant truck. Well, this person who worked for the company, the person who was driving by, stopped and pulled into the bar and went in. There was the guy who was driving the truck. He was in there and he was drinking and smoking and enjoying life, living the best life possible. So what she did was she called the driver's manager, transport manager, told him what was going on. The transport manager drove over to the bar, took the keys from the uh, employee and made him a former employee right there on the spot. That is how severe the, they take it. The principals are not going to mess around. Well, that was just a little problem. Let's talk about it. No, you're gone simply because the great risk that you placed if that propane tank had exploded, you not only would have killed everyone in the bar, you would have killed all the people who were at, staying at the hotel too. So that gives you an idea of the harshness. And it sounds sometimes like companies are being assholes about how strictly they monitor and enforce. Well, guess what? There are good reasons for that. Because it wouldn't have been that agent who would have been sued. It would have been that corporation. And the detriment would have been to the shareholders of the corporation by that. Okay. That was a lot of work. Now, let's talk about this. Moving forward, in finance, I am not interested in hearing too much about this other than to give it to you. In finance, remember what I talked about liquidated value? I need numbers. 
What does this agency dilemma mean in numbers? Well, that's where you get into something where we have to assess agents, uh, an agent's misbehavior by cost. So we write out, we list the agency costs. The agency costs. The first one is perquisites, perks. These are benefits derived by an agent from position. Benefits derived by an agent from position. This is the uh, CEO who has a desk that you could land small aircraft on. This is the executives who stay at five-star hotels on the road and eat at great restaurants. Perks of your position. Well, I can do this. So I'm, but that was the money of the, that was the shareholder's money. That was not his or her money. And yet, because of the position, he could command that money for his own benefit. That's a perquisite. It's an agency cost, and we are liquidating it to a money value. The truth be told that when you pay, uh, our research says that salaries in the millions of dollars, they don't increase productivity one little bit. We're paying them as perks to get these people on our team. Second one, shirking, avoiding responsibilities, shirking. That's the extra few minutes out for a smoke break. That's walking around the office chatting with your fellow employees. Oh, how was your weekend? <laughs> Mine was great. <laughs> That's shirking your responsibility. I had a, a good example of this was at a company I consulted for many, many years ago, there was an employee, uh, he was a manager, an account manager, and he bragged, I don't have any uh, work on my desk. I make sure I have all my work off my desk at the end of every night. Well, you know how he does it. He simply takes what's on his desk and he puts it on the, on the desks of his subordinates. They come in the next morning with this pile of work that was his. He's shirking his responsibilities. There was an employee at that same place, a big wig. Every morning at 8 o'clock, he would come in on time and he would grab the Wall Street Journal off the receptionist's desk and he would go into the men's toilet and he would spend 40 minutes there taking a shit. Every morning. I saw it. It was like clockwork. I was here at 8 o'clock. <laughs> yeah, you were, you, were blow, you were blowing your used food now, for 40 minutes of that. That's shirking. And it's done vastly. We can measure in terms of time lost to what is not your duty for the company. Now there are uh, three other ones and I'll cover those on Monday. For now though, you need to take a quiz. And when you finish with it, that's all I have for you today. I thank you.